then he went uh, down south. We didn't cover any of that, really. And it, again, if you get Joseph Tracy's 19th century book, The First History of the Great Awakening, uh, you'll find all of these facts in here. And again, today, what we're going through this morning uh, is just such a small little sliver. It's really painful to have to cut it off at any point, but it's, it's the nature of, of uh, having a class on anything, really. You can't cover everything, otherwise it would be a class on everything. So uh, that's where we're at. Uh, so Whitfield went down south, uh, all the way down to Savannah, and then came back up. Uh, we also talked then about Samuel Blair and his church in, in New Londonderry, Pennsylvania and about the awakening uh, that took place there. And if you recall, Blair was one of the Long College men. He was one of the students of William Tennant. And we'll look at some, a few more of those students of William Tennant in, in coming weeks still before we reach the end, which we're coming to pretty quickly. Well, this morning we want to look at uh, Whitfield's visit to Northampton. To Northampton. And... Uh, the, the Edwards family, Jonathan and Sarah, and their seven children at this point. They were to have 11 at all. At this point, when Whitfield came to visit them, they had seven children. So uh, Jonathan Edwards, between his pastoral and husbandly duties and, and children duties and counseling and so forth, was a very, very busy man at this time. So we'll look at that. That's what we're going to start with. And then we're going to shift into a, a look again at Gilbert Tennant, and his labors in Boston and the surrounding areas, which is a, a very wonderful chapter in the, in the midst of, uh, of the Great Awakening. And then thirdly, we're going to look at a, a particular episode of an awakening in Lyme, Connecticut, under uh, the pastor there, whose name was Jonathan Parsons. Jonathan Parsons. And between those three things, we'll cover about a year, from the end of 1740 to about the end of 1741. So that's where we're, we're at. And then we'll kind of change gears a little bit going into next week and get into some of the controversial excesses of the Great Awakening, which we may have already seen hints of, uh, and, and some pushback from some of the more conservative Presbyterians. We're going we're gonna to see, well, there was a division. Uh, it was a schism. ended up being a 17-year schism between... Uh, the so-called new side and the old side, that is the conservative Presbyterians who were opposed, and not just among in the Presbyterians, but you had the new lights and the old lights among the Congregationalists, uh, those that opposed the Great Awakening as, as being the devious work, at worst, of the devil himself, uh, sowing discord in the church and all of the excesses, and then those that were more uh, moderate to progressive in their view of the Great Awakening uh, among them would have been the Log College men, certainly. Edwards and others would have defended it as being a true work of the Spirit, yet it did have human excesses where you have anywhere in the world. As long as we're in a fallen world, you're going to have excesses, uh, sinful excesses even, not innocent ones. You have innocent, but then you have sinful as well. So we're going to get into some of that next week just to whet your appetite. If we should have our appetites whetted for division and controversy. That, that's what that will be. So those are the three things this morning. That's a look at next week. So let's just open up this morning with some verses out of uh, Hebrews chapter 4. There's, there's a phrase that Jonathan Parson uses, and we'll come to it at the very end of the hour this morning, uh, in which he refers to the mediatorial excellencies of Jesus Christ. And I just that, that phrase just captures me. 
the mediatorial excellencies and the mediatorial glory of Jesus Christ. Not just a vague, general kind of, of, of uh, affection for the Lord, but it's very pointed and focused on the work that he's accomplished, not just in the past at the cross, but what he accomplishes even now, day by day, uh, in his office of interceding for the church. Every day, without it, that intercession, we would fail utterly notwithstanding his death on the cross. It's important never to separate those two aspects of his high priestly office and exercise. So, that being said, uh, I want to read these verses. We'll open up with them. Uh, Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 12, and we'll just read to the end of the chapter. This this is a text that we've had read to us often in church, uh, particularly since we've not that long ago been through Hebrews. Uh, in our sermons. All right, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then, that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and all of the richness of his work and of his office and of his person that is, is touched on in these verses, which are food to our soul and, and nourishment to our faith. Increase our faith in your eternal electing love, Father, and in the grace that overflows from that great treasure that you've given to your church, not silver or gold or any corruptible thing, but the living Lord Jesus Christ, who is our rock. Help us to stand firmly upon him in spite of, of our sins, which are great and which we ought to remember often, confessing. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, be with us in this hour. Be with us in the next hour. Attend your church. Do what you love to do, that is, draw us to yourself in power and in sweetness and in all of your merit and sufficiency. We pray, amen. Okay, so we're going to pick up with Whitfield. Whitfield was coming back up the coast and uh, everyone in New England was anticipating his visit. Thousands, and I could even say tens of thousands, because if you remember, even at Edwards' own church in Northampton, you had over a thousand people in that one church. They and, and so many other churches and congregations in New England were excited and anticipating his coming. It's important to remember that the Great Awakening was the first really great unifying event in America's history. It was just a few decades before... Uh, the American Revolution, and even before the American Revolution, things were already brewing. So there's a there's a wonderful uh, 
movement from the Great Awakening and the unity that it brought to the American people around a single theme, that is, repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. And it really, it, it makes, it, it lays uh, a very, very sound and firm foundation for the revolution, actually, which not in and of itself, it was not a Christian event, but the atmosphere and the mood of the, the, the colonists, by and large, was a deeply religious atmosphere that had been nourished by the Great Awakening. And so the American Revolution is fundamentally different. And if, you, if, if, if you're into political history at all, you'll appreciate this, I hope. Fundamentally different, unlike secular historians try to paint it as, uh, from the French Revolution. They, they were not... They were similar in some of the circumstances and uh, what was visible to the eye at some point. Uh, but in principle, they were fundamentally different. And we're not going to get it. This is not an American history class. But uh, it, it, there's a profound difference between the two. And so much of that difference is because of the Great Awakening proceeding so, so closely uh, the beginning of the American Revolution. And George Whitfield individually, was really the first great... American celebrity. So it was a religion. It wasn't even an American. He was an Englishman, and yet he was the first great American celebrity. That that uh, if you had walked arbitrarily into any household in all of the thirteen colonies and mentioned his name, there's a a, a, a great great chance that they would have immediately known who you were talking about. First person that had that kind of a of a of an identity that, that all Americans had in common. Uh, the next after him, which were, was to come in a few more decades, would have been George Washington, which everybody obviously knew. But but here we're dealing with Whitfield, so he's a great figure in our own history. So he was closing out his American tour, heading to New England. Uh, no one was more eager to receive him than Jonathan Edwards himself. At the, in your handout from last week, uh, there was included in there a letter, part of a letter, that Edwards had sent earlier in that year to Whitfield, uh, begging him to come to Northampton. He wanted to meet him for himself. He said, and this is just in part, uh, this is Edwards to Whitfield, it has been with refreshment of soul that I have heard of one raised up in the Church of England to revive the mysterious, despised, spiritual, and exploded doctrines of the gospel. They had come into very much disfavor, that is. Blessed be God that hath done it, who is with you. My request is that in your journey through New England, you would visit Northampton. Well, he did, and uh, he spent about a month or so actually preaching in Boston and the surrounding towns, and that'll become important in just a little while uh, in reference to Gilbert Tennant. Uh, but Whitfield preached all through there, and then he made his way into Connecticut and to Northampton. He arrived in the Edwards home uh, on Friday, beginning the weekend, uh, October 17th. He stayed the entire weekend, uh, preached four times. Edwards had him in the pulpit almost immediately. He didn't wait for Sunday. He had him Friday night when he got there. He was in the pulpit. The people were gathered uh, to church to hear Whitfield. And, and, and Edwards was right there in the front row with his wife and his children, ready to listen. This is what Whitfield says. In, in that first sermon Friday night, he said, I found my heart drawn out to talk of scarce anything besides the consolations and the privileges of saints and the plentiful effusion. There's that term again that they love to use, the plentiful effusion of the Spirit upon believers. And here, I don't know this for a fact, but, but, but in, in reading the letter, thinking about what he's talking about, he's not talking about 
what's happening at the moment in the Great Awakening, this, this ex- extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit uh, in an unusual way. He's talking about the regular ministry of the Holy Spirit, which Christ told his disciples would come upon them. That is, I'm sending the Comforter to you. Uh, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the regular, uh, normal, ordinary, but it is extraordinary, ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of New Testament believers. We are living in an eschatological time. That is, the time which all the prophets in the Old Testament looked forward to. And, and so glorious was the times that they were prophesying of in which we're living that, that they often really couldn't even distinguish between the times in which we're now living and the times in which the new Jerusalem will come down from God out of heaven. I mean, they, they when we read those Old Testament prophecies, it almost seamlessly goes from the time in which we're living to that glorious end time when the wolf will lie down with the lamb and so forth. So uh, it's, it, it's important to understand that. I mean, Whitfield is on to something here. Uh, the, the privilege that we have in our time, living in this eschatological time, or the end, the end times which the prophets looked at and, and desired to understand. Well, anyhow... Uh, so he says, he speaks of this plentiful effusion of the Spirit upon believers. And then he says, when I came to remind them of their former experiences and how zealous and lively they were at that time, and he's referring to the 1735 awakening that now had, had, had severely cooled off. He said, when I spoke of these things, both minister and people wept very much. He does say at another time... Uh, that when he looked down at Whitfield, or at Edwards, Edwards was weeping almost as self-controlled as Edwards was, and he was the master of self-control, if ever a man was a master uh, of, of his own emotions. And yet there was was Edwards. He, he couldn't even restrain himself, just just weeping as he listened to Whitfield preach to his people. Well, the next morning, uh, again, Edwards was dragging Whitfield all over the place, showing him to everyone. And he had him sit down with his seven children in the living room and talk with them very closely about their souls. And so the children sat there and listened. They were at this time, uh, the oldest was 12 years old, going all the way down to three months. The newborn was just three months old. so he sat and talked with them. And he, in his journal, he makes observations about them and about Jonathan and Sarah. Of Jonathan and Sarah, he says, A sweeter couple I have not seen. Mrs. Edwards is adorned with a meek and quiet spirit, and she talked solidly of the things of God. Mr. Edwards is a solid, excellent Christian, and I think I have not seen his fellow in all New England. But he also, he adds this about Edwards. He says, At present he is weak in body. Well, that is far from being uh, an untypical observation that, that contemporaries of Edwards would have made. Uh, he was always being referred to as being weak in body, a sickly of an infirm constitution. In fact, Samuel Hopkins, who was a protege of Edwards, he was a ministerial candidate and uh, lived for a time with the Edwards and wrote the first biography of Jonathan Edwards, in fact, uh, shortly after Edwards died. Samuel Hopkins says this, And again, he's speaking from someone living in the household, observing him day after day after day, and his his workings with his family. He says, Edwards was of a weak, infirm constitution, with but a small stock of animal life, yet few are capable of a closer or longer application in study. He commonly spent 13 hours every day in his study. And then on Sunday, 
he would step into the pulpit, this is Edwards, and, and preach almost in a motionless fashion, almost like he was a statue there. That, that, those are the eyewitnesses' reports, uh, which is a great contrast. Again, I mean, Whitfield and Edwards, kindred spirits, and there's so many, it, it, it's just a lovely task to see the, 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 the likenesses and their like-mindedness, and yet, in their outward expression, how polar opposites they were. Uh, Whitfield was, was all action. Uh, Pemberton, if you remember Ebenezer Pemberton, who had Whitfield in New York in his own church, says that Whitfield acts and moves with great agility and a sprightly, cheerful temper. Uh, not that Edwards wasn't cheerful. That's, that's not the contrast we want to make there. Uh, in fact... The word delight is a word that is often on Edwards' lips, if you read him at all, delight. And, and that really is, is, as far as I can see, probably the best word that describes Edwards' inner life. Not necessarily the expression of it, but the inner life is one of delight. He was, he was just in a, in a constant, perpetual delight in, again, those mediatorial glories of Jesus Christ and of of the eternal electing love of the Father and of the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification and so forth. Uh, that was Edwards. But uh, if delight was the best word that sums up his inner life, gravity would probably be the word that best describes his outward demeanor, uh, his, most, his most striking visible feature. Hopkins says this, again of Edwards, as he's describing him, uh, this gravity says Hopkins, was the natural expression of a deep and abiding sense of divine things on his mind and of his living constantly in the fear of God so that in the pulpit he appeared with such gravity and solemnity that few speakers have been able to command the attention of an audience as he did. So there he was just standing still uh, and yet people were in rapt attention listening to his words because here was a, here was a presence in the pulpit of a man who who almost Moses-like was descending from the mount of God and, and appealing to the people in the name of God. Well, uh, Whitfield could certainly command the kind of attention that Edwards did. Again, uh, physically expressing himself in a vastly different way than Edwards. But substantially, or substantively, they, the, the same content was coming out of their mouths to the people. And that's what was... That's what was the power. Sarah said this as she sat and listened to Whitfield. It is wonderful to see what a spell Mr. Whitfield casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. I have seen upwards of a thousand people. And here again, she's she's in her church. She's looking around. I have seen upwards of a thousand people hang on his words with breathless silence. He speaks from a heart all aglow with love which is irresistible. Well, the weekend passed very quickly. As I said, he preached four times over the weekend. Sunday night, uh, he took his leave. So he said goodbye to everyone. He left for Connecticut. He was still going to preach through Connecticut until he got back to uh, embark across the Atlantic to go back home to England. On his way, uh, Edwards couldn't bear to see him go, and so Edwards uh, got on horseback, and uh, they traveled together a good ways. And, And one of the reasons was Edwards had some more sensitive subjects to talk about with Whitfield when it was just the two of them. And uh, 
So he did. They got on horseback. They rode south towards Connecticut, and uh, and Edwards brought up. He broached these sensitive subjects. The first one was that he felt that that Whitfield relied too much on impulses as the direct leading of the spirit. This is something we know today. Uh, it's it's widespread in the evangelical uh, church today. Uh, a, a relying on impulses as being substantially the work of the leading of the Holy Spirit. What do I feel the Spirit is saying to me? Well, Whitfield was susceptible to that, very much so. He was a deeply emotional person. And he had been influenced greatly by the Wesleys, who in turn had been uh, tutored and brought up to a large degree by the Moravians. And uh, both those groups, the Wesleys, the Moravians, always, their whole life long, put a great emphasis on impulses. So Whitfield did too, at this point. He was a very young man still, and, and happily he changed his view on this. Uh, he didn't change it immediately, though, when Whitfield brought it up. Uh, Edward says that, that uh, he responded very politely, but he just didn't have much to say on the subject. He didn't seem to really want to talk about it. And so, so Edwards dropped the subject and just let that lie for now. But as I said, eventually Whitfield did, through some, some hard experiences that he went through because of, of uh, leadings that turned out to be errors, uh, he, he came over to Edwards' side. The second thing he brought up was this, this massive problem, really, that the new lights and the new siders were beginning to see, and that is the, the, the problem of unconverted ministers in the pulpit. Uh, unconverted ministers. Tennant, Gilbert Tennant had, had recently published a sermon that he had preached uh, called The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry. Very famous sermon in the history of the Great Awakening. It divided the Presbyterian Church, not just the sermon, but the substance of it. Uh, what do you do about unconverted ministers? How do you know if your minister is unconverted or not? I mean, these are judgment calls oftentimes. Well, Tennant took a hard stance on this, and so uh, he, he, he uh, fomented a controversy among the Presbyterians. In, in the Presbyterian Church in America. Well, Edwards and Tennant and Edwards and Whitfield both knew about the sermon, obviously, and so Edwards wanted to bring it up because he felt that um, Whitfield might be taking too extreme a view on this. Well, the sermon by Tennant, uh, I'm, I'm not going to read this. I, well, actually, I do want to read part of it because it'll become important later on. But the text that he based this sermon off of was Mark 6.34, in which Jesus said, I'm sorry, in which it was said of Jesus, he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's a familiar verse. You, you, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure you are familiar with it when I say those words. They were like a sheep without a shepherd. And, and Tennant's application of that was, well, the, the, the people had the Pharisees for their shepherds, but they were like sheep without a shepherd because their shepherds were unconverted ministers. And they were dead men preaching to dead people. And the people needed something more. And Jesus was one of those that came in and began to speak with life and power. He said, this man has authority. So that was the text. And, and I will just read a portion of this. The ministry of natural men is dangerous, says Tennant, both in respect of the doctrines and the practice of piety. The doctrines of original sin, justification by faith alone, and other points of Calvinism are very cross to the grain of unrenewed nature. And though men through education or hopes of advantage may have the edge of their natural enmity blunted, 
yet it's far from being broken or removed. It's only the saving grace of God that can give us a true relish for those nature-humbling doctrines. And alas, what poor guides are natural ministers to those who are under spiritual trouble. Well, one of those who was a poor guide to those under spiritual trouble was Jonathan Parsons, who we're going to come to in in just a little bit. Uh, If we don't run out of time, and I'm starting to get the sneaky suspicion that we're going to run out of time, so we'll just see how far we get. But either way, whether it's now or next week, we will get to Jonathan Parsons. We'll see how we do. What poor guides are natural ministers to those who are under spiritual trouble? They either slight such distress altogether and call it melancholy or madness, Or they daub those that are under it with untempered mortar. Now that's a classic Gilbert Tennant phrase. And what he means by that, you know, mortar is the the, the mud, you know, between the bricks when you're building a brick wall. And if you have too much sand or whatever in it, uh, it's not going to be stable. And tempered being, I guess, does anybody know exactly, you know, if you're a mason, anyone mason in here? uh, I think it has to do with treating treating it in some way and maybe bringing it to a certain temperature. Uh, but it, it's, it hasn't been treated in such a way that it's stable for the foundation. Philip? You take the steel, it's hard. So you, you apply a temperature to it so that when it does go under stress, it doesn't snap. Okay, good. Yeah, and that's, that, that's the analogy is from steel to, to the mortar uh, for making choices. Tr- the moisture Okay. So you have to apply the moisture and then let it set to kind of evaporate a little bit to give it the proper stick. I got you. So, so it's not a matter of heat. It's so it'll just stick when you butter your brick. Okay. Good. Thank you. But you can't. So, yeah, you can't lay. But if it's not tempered, it won't stick to the brick. Okay. I got you. And then the whole edifice could potentially crumble in time. Yeah, when stress is laid on it. Okay. So, so you already see the analogy that Tennant is drawing, that uh, they're, they're daubing those that are under conviction of sin with untempered mortar. That is, they're giving them a solution that isn't a gospel solution. They're mixing their do. They're saying, you need to do this, you need to do that. Very Roman Catholic in spirit, it's just in the Protestant garb, uh, Protestant duties instead of Catholic duties. But the idea is the same, that you're mixing this with the true ground of justification, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. If we don't have that foundation, then we'll go all through our Christian, quote-unquote, life and never be prepared for the storms of conviction that might come in the future or whatever else will come. Uh, We're unstable Christians at best and unconverted hypocrites who think that we're Christian at worst. And that was the concern of of, uh, Tennant. In that if you have unconverted ministers daubing with untempered mortar, they're just nourishing a bunch of works-oriented Christians in name. So that was his concern. And it's a valid concern, it's an urgent concern in the church even today. Well, Edwards and Whitfield agreed perfectly on the the danger of an unconverted ministry. Uh, This is what Whitfield said, I would not lay my hands on an unconverted man for 10,000 worlds. He, he would never, 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 at the cost of virtually everything else in the world, ordain a minister that he thought was without grace. Well, so they were agreed on that. The difficult point was what Tennant said in his application in his sermon, and that was that it was both lawful and expedient, and those are the words that Tennant used, lawful and expedient 
to leave graceless ministers and seek out ministers that they thought were more imbued with the Spirit. Uh, nowadays, that's, that doesn't seem like much of a, of a crime, and I would say it's probably not a crime. In fact, emphatically, it's not a crime. But when the institution of the church was so central, I mean, it's, it's hard for us to, to get back into the frame of mind that the average citizen in the 13 colonies had in the 1740s. The, the institution of the church, the, the wedding almost, as it were, that, that a child being born into the world in a particular community, uh, both Congregationalists and Presbyterians, we're not even dealing with Baptists at this point. Even the Congregationalists who weren't Presbyterian in their church government were still pedo baptists And so virtually all of them were born into the church, baptized, brought up in it, died in it, and the church was the central institution uh, in which every family was reared. And so to just say, well, I don't think that my pastor uh, is really preaching good stuff and walk out and leave and to take your family with you, this was revolutionary stuff. I mean, th- this was not stuff that you played around with. Today, people get up and go from one church to another constantly. It's just it's the American way, the marketplace of the church. It wasn't the case in this, in this time. Edwards saw a looming danger in this kind of thinking that, that Tennant had in his sermon. He, again, he agreed in principle with the problem. He, he, he wasn't so sure about the solution. Whitfield was totally on board with Tennant at this point. Edwards said, there's a danger in this kind of thinking because, y- you, yes, you don't want to be under a graceless minister, an unconverted minister, but there's so many, in the Christian life, there's so many degrees of grace and gifts, and personalities are so varied uh, that, that we want to err. If we're going to err in either direction, err on the side of charity. Err on the side of charity. And so you may err, but it's, it's better to be charitable in a case like this because there's so many dangers that you're likely to fall into if you're too extreme on the point. So Edwards urged Whitfield... Uh, against judging other persons to be unconverted, he said, especially when impulses are being relied on to make that decision. That's when the danger really came in. We'll see that next week uh, or the week after, depending, again, uh, the time's uh, quickly being lost here. So I think it will be then in two weeks we'll look at... uh, Well, we'll see. Never mind. I'm wasting more time even thinking out loud here, so I will just shut up uh, in regards to that. I'll keep my mouth open in regards to our lesson. Well, again, Whitfield was very kind. He certainly didn't want to get into an argument with with Edwards. And uh, so he didn't really say anything, but Edwards could tell he wasn't, you know, he's not really tracking with me on this point. He's reserving opinions. He doesn't want to get into um, an argument. Uh, And so Whitfield and Tennant both kept their opinions later on, years down the road. Uh, after a lot of harm had been done on this issue, both Tennant and Whitfield came over to Edwards' side. This is one of the things that's so admirable about Edwards is that, that he was just wise beyond his years. He really, really was. Even as a young man, he always seemed to have the right view and history has vindicated him. There was, there was a solidity about him. Uh, and yet he was so inwardly so emotional, but there was a stability about him that... Um, that, that uh, 
is just so admirable. I mean, if there's anyone in the Great Awakening that I recommend you're studying the life of, certainly it's, it's Edwards. I mean, there's just, you can find flaws, but uh, the flaws are so minor, and the virtues uh, and the gifts and the graces are so major. So study Edwards, and you really can hardly go wrong. All right, well, we're going to bring this morning to a close within the next few minutes here. So we're just going to talk about Tennant. We're not even going to get to Jonathan Parsons this morning. We'll have to save that for next week. Uh, But Whitfield now is preparing to leave for England again. But before he did, uh, he wanted to talk with Gilbert Tennant. He had a request uh, to lay before Gilbert Tennant. And that is, would you follow up all of the ministry that I've done in Boston and in the surrounding area? Would you follow up? after I leave and visit these same churches and see how people are doing and uh, preach to them, preach to them the gospel and nourish the faith that's been begotten in so many souls. Tenant agreed. And so that winter, and it was the worst winter that uh, had been reported for some 30 years or so in the Boston area. It was terrible. Snowstorms constantly, ice everywhere. The mailmen could be seen uh, tromping through the snow in in snowshoes. I mean, even back then, well, better than now, uh, through thick and thin, the mailmen were out there in their snowshoes. Well, Tennant arrived mid-December, so this is 1740. He trudged undeterred through the snow, visiting every church that Whitfield had been in. One eyewitness, uh, Timothy Cutler. Timothy Cutler, you may remember, was the rector at Yale when Jonathan Edwards was a student there. Well, Timothy Cutler had defected uh, not only into Arminianism, but uh, into Anglicanism as well. Or actually, I should put it the other way. Uh, it's, it's, the problem with Anglicanism, to a large degree, is the Arminianism. So uh, you can be a good Anglican, and you can be a good Arminian too, but doctrinally, it's, it, it just does not set with the scriptures. So. He had defected to Anglicanism and was an Arminian now, Timothy Cutler. Well, he saw Tennant preaching in the snow, outside, inside, and uh, he called him a monster. This is what, this is what Cut- Cutler said of Tennant. He was a monster telling the people that they were damned, damned, damned. This is Cutler's words. This charmed the people. And in the most dreadful winter I ever saw, people wallowed in the snow night and day for the benefit of his beastly brain. He just couldn't understand it. People loved being condemned. They, they seemed to be drawn to it for some reason. They didn't understand the work of the Spirit, certainly. But then, in contrast to Cutler, there was Thomas Prince. And he was the pastor of the Old South Church in Boston of revolutionary fame. If you know much about Boston and the American Revolution, the Old South Church is a major, is a major place. Well, this is what Thomas Prince says who was a great friend of the awakening, he, that is, tenant, seemed to have no regard to please the eyes of his hearers with agreeable gesture, nor their ears with delivery, but to aim directly at their hearts and consciences, to lay open their ruinous delusions, show them their numerous secret hypocritical shifts, and drive them out of every deceitful refuge. And though while the discovery was making, some at first raged, yet in the progress of the discovery, many were forced to submit. And then the power of God so broke and humbled them that they wanted a further and even a thorough discovery. They went to hear him. And, and again, this is they're, they're going to hear his tenants' beastly brains. They're wanting to hear more because the Holy Spirit has begun to work in their hearts and they know that this is the way of life. 
They went to hear him that the secret corruptions of their hearts might be more discovered. And the more searching the sermon, the more acceptable it was to their anxious minds. Such were the convictions wrought in many hundreds in this town by Mr. Tennant's searching ministry. Well, then Tennant says this, though, I mean, this, this is, a, a, is a wonderful uh, applauding, as it were, of, of the, the power and the effectiveness of Tennant's ministry. But Tennant himself said this, I had little to do with it. I was much fatigued with traveling. I had little time to collect or arrange my thoughts. But I went into the pulpit and I spoke as well as I could and God taught the people. I love that. God taught the people. I, I, I was at my wit's ends. I'd had, I didn't even have time to prepare for the sermon. But the Spirit of God was carrying him and God was teaching the people. And he was a witness of the work of God as much as the people that were listening to him. He was amazed. Well, he preached the whole winter and then in the spring now, with the arrival of spring, 1741, he worked his way back through Connecticut to, to his house in New Brunswick. Uh, again, preaching through Connecticut just as Whitfield had done. But his departure didn't end the work in Boston because now the ministers were left with all of these people under conviction. Many had been converted. Many were still under conviction. So the ministers were deluged with work, preaching, counseling at all hours. One, one of these ministers said that in one week, more came than in the 24 years preceding in his ministry. In one week. In the space of three months, he said upwards of 600 people. And he's not talking about decisions as we talk about today. It wasn't 600 decisions. It was 600, upwards of 600 people coming under a deep conviction of sin, looking for relief in Jesus Christ and not understanding how to have faith in Him. So we're not talking light experiences here. We're not talking uh, decisions, as I said. All of these, in one way or another, he said, complained of their hard hearts and their past unbelief, pride, contempt of Christ, their love and captivity to sin, their utter impotence to help themselves or even to believe on Christ. Well, Prince says, as the ministers were, again, just almost overburdened uh, with this all hours, Prince says, the more we prayed and preached, the more enlarged were our hearts and the more delightful our employment. You just see the Spirit giving grace and strength and power and wisdom to these ministers. And then how many and how serious, says Prince, and how attentive were our hearers. Well, that was the ministry of Tennant in Boston following Whitfield. Now, uh, Tennant, and we'll close here because we're out of time, one of the churches that Tennant stopped at in Connecticut was Lyme, the, the, the town of Lyme, Connecticut. And this is where Jonathan Parsons was the minister. So this is where we'll pick up next week with Tennant coming to preach at Jonathan Parsons' church. We're going to look a little at the history of Jonathan Parsons and bring him up to the present time. And we'll just move on from there. So let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you for these wonderful things uh, that you have worked in this world through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be with us. Lord Jesus, be with us in the preaching and at the table. Be with us and meet with us. Again, in spite of our sin, we thank you for your cleansing, uh, all-sufficient blood. We ask these things in your name. Amen.